everyone can hear, right? Yeah, good, excellent. It's not just fine, right? Well, good morning. I know it's some of a, uh, a shock to you that, that Clay isn't here. They decided to take the weekend this weekend uh, to the lake. Grateful that they can do that, and grateful that I get to preach today because that is uh, uh, something that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, we're just going to kind of get into it today because this is kind of a pointed, um, not pointed necessarily, not aimed, um, but victory in Jesus and holy ground and these things that we're already sung about, it's kind of, kind of through here in the Word. Um, you guys know the song, that old-time religion, right? Give me that old-time religion, you know, good enough for Paul and Silas, and yeah, you know the, you know the verse, you know the, you know the song. Um, we're going to talk about that old-time religion, but not like the 1930s and 40s and the wartime and... We're going to go back further. Uh, not, not the Great Awakening, not, uh, not the Puritans. We're going to go back further. We're going to keep going back further until we get to the first century church. So turn in your Bibles, if you would, with me to Acts chapter 4. If you happen to not have a Bible today, it will be on the screen. The verse will be. Um, and Russell, I've lost track of that clicker. Um, so Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 37. It's a chunk of uh, Scripture. So if you will, oh, it's in the pew, whoops. I didn't grab the one thing I needed to grab before I came up here. Um, it's a chunk of scripture. If you'll stand with me in honor of God's word, this is Acts chapter 4. Not that far. Beginning in verse 23. And Luke writes, they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Uh, lost my place. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus." And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Continuing on in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said uh, that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There, were not, uh, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and, bought the and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who, had also, uh, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that had belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we see 
here in this story, and this is Luke writing the Acts. So he, wrote, he writes the Gospel of Luke, and he writes the book of Acts, and he's writing both of these letters to a guy named Theophilus, who we don't know just a ton about, but we do know uh, that Luke was writing these letters to Theophilus to kind of persuade him of the things that he had seen. Luke was an eyewitness uh, to Jesus. He was a witness to the things that had happened. He was a witness to a lot of Paul's missionary journeys. Um, and so he decided to write, after the events, the book of Luke, and he wrote also uh, the book of the Acts of the Apostles here that we're in today. Now, whenever we're reading Acts, and this is, this is one of those books, it's a, it's a nice history book, it's a good story to tell um, all the miracles that Paul, his, his, uh, his sorrows there at the end, starting in chapter 21, it's a good story to read. And it, Luke writes very well, and he does that um, through God's grace. But sometimes we have a cultural haze, and what I mean by that is this. There's 2,000 years separating us from the first century church. 2,000 years of history, 2,000 years of people's lives, 2,000 years of things going uh, on, you know. And so we have kind of this cultural haze. Well, the Bible's been interpreted this way for so long. And then the Reformation happens, and oh no, actually Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 actually says this. And so we're going back and forth through the culture and the Scripture. And whether we like it or not, a lot of the times our interpretation of Scripture is kind of dirtied by the culture that we're in. Um, so like, for instance, uh, the Bible's been co-opted a lot of times to prove points uh, throughout history. Uh, slavery was one of those things. Capitalism's one of those things. Socialism's one of those things. And none of those, slavery existed then, but none of those things, the economic structures, political structures that we see today were not the same as they are today then. Um, so like, for instance, they use, they use the narrative here in 32, saying well, socialism's the right thing to do. They sold all their stuff and redistributed the wealth. That's not exactly what they did, the Bible says here. It says they freely gave their things and they distributed it to the poor as they saw need. And we see later in Acts chapter 5, that was their free choice to do. They, uh, they were given the option to do or to not do that. Um, and Sapphira and Ananias lied, and they were killed for it. So, um, so just as a disclaimer, we're going to try to kind of cut away that cultural haze that we're kind of reading the Bible with a lot of times today and get to what is genuine Christianity. And we see it here in Acts chapter 4. So if we go back to the earliest church, if we go back to this first century church, we see five different things um, in, this, in this passage that would lead us to see that this is the original church. It is genuine, the church that we see in Acts it is authentic, it's original, it's real, and it's true. Anytime you go back to the origin of something, anytime you go back to the beginning of something, you're going to find these five things in the origins of something. You go back to the original copy of the Constitution, and you're going to see exactly what the law of the land was in the United States starting from 1789 on. That's the real, true, original, intended, authentic country. And so is the church in Acts. This is the church that Jesus left the apostles. The apostles are still around who were taught by Jesus. So, um, let's get into it, shall we? A big question that we're going to try to answer today, and I say we because I need you to participate as well, in honesty, in truth, and not out loud. Not totally. Um, because, Preston, you can talk if you want to. Okay. <laughs> because here's the thing 
if we're not honest with ourselves first in these big questions that we're about to ask ourselves, um, we can't be honest in anything else in our life. Because if your life isn't starting from the fundamental faith that your spirit has, then you can't be honest about anything else in life. So, if you're a believer, the, first que- the, the big question for you is, are you really? And if you ask yourself that enough, if you ask yourself that all the time, it's going to drive you crazy. Because there's no way that you can say, yes, and then you keep asking the question, yes, and yes. Jesus, after Peter uh, betrays him, and they're, they're being reconciled together, and Jesus asks him, Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, feed my flock. You know, he asked him three times, and by the third time, you can tell in the, in the passage that John writes, it's driving Peter crazy. Jesus, yes, of course, you know, and by the third time, you can tell Peter's kind of getting a little terse with him, like, yes, Lord, you know everything, you know that I love you. So if you ask yourself that question enough, am I really a believer? Am I really a Christian? Do I really hold these truths and doctrines that the Bible teaches? You're going to drive yourself crazy. And so you don't want to ask the question too much, right? Because then you start doubting yourself. But however, it's unhealthy to not ask it every once in a while. We have to always check ourselves. Am I a Christian? Do I, do I believe what the Bible is teaching me? Um, has the culture gotten too ingrained with, with what I see um, in the world today? That, 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 it's, that it's taken me away. And then if you're not a believer here today, first of all, grace to you for coming. That's awesome that you're, that you're even looking. Um, and if you're not a believer, and you used to be, so you hear a lot of the story, and we'll go over this a little bit later, that you know, I was a Christian, then I wasn't, and here's why. Because God didn't come through for me, or I just didn't see any truth in it at all. I always question that first, I was a Christian until, because were you really? And so that's the other big question for the other side of the audience, if there's anyone here today with that, is were you really? So are you really, if you are a Christian, and were you really, um, if you say you were and then fell out, fell out of the faith? And, you know, we see that all the time, too. Um, and there's, there's kind of this policy here um, in philosophy. I love philosophy. I like reading and stuff. Um, there are necessary signs and there are sufficient signs. And Tim Keller has a really, really good illustration about necessary versus sufficient signs. So, whew, anyone else's allergies is killing them, making me cry, and snot and everything else. So. <laughs> Um, Keller uses this illustration. He's a pastor in New York City. He's really great, a uh, really good teacher. And he uses this illustration that goes like this. So if you live in a country in which it is required by law for all doctors to wear a white coat, okay? You have to wear a white coat if you're, if you're a medical professional. However, anyone else can wear a white coat too. So if you work in the energy industry, if you're a teacher, you can also wear a white coat if you like to, okay? A white coat would be a sufficient or would be a necessary sign of being a doctor, but it wouldn't be sufficient, would it? Because everyone else can wear a white coat too. Necessary versus sufficient. If there are things in your life that you can point to and say, yes, I, I affirm that doctrine in the Bible, yes, I believe what Jesus said about so and so, and yes, you know, those are those are necessary signs. Uh, but the demon, demons believe in all sorts of good doctrine too. James in chapter two says that. Demons believe the word of God and they tremble. They know God. They know more about God than we do. They more, know more about Jesus than we do. They believe all sorts of good doctrine, but they're not saved. 
So that's necessary versus sufficient signs. It's necessary to believe these things, but it's not necessarily a sufficient sign that we affirm all those things. Um, another example is a, a guy's talking to a pastor, right? And this is a made-up story. But a guy's talking to a pastor, and uh, he says, Pastor, I feel like I'm going, you know, I feel like I'm a Christian, strong in the faith, I feel like I'm going to heaven. I'm here every Sunday, I'm basically nailed to the church, and blah, blah, blah. The pastor goes, dude, the pews are nailed to the church, they're not going to heaven. Like, you might be here all the time, you might be doing all the things all the time, but are you really a Christian? That's what we're going to look at today. So, uh, we have four points. Sorry, not a traditional Baptist, we're doing four instead of three. Um, I love three-point essays, but I really love four-point sermons. So, we're going to look at four different signposts to tell yourself and to evaluate yourself. This is going to be a self-evaluation. You can't pass or fail. Um, whether or not you are a Christian, have saving faith, all that stuff. So, uh, the first one we're going to do is you serve God consistently, especially in suffering. And normally I would say we or they or someone. We're personalizing things today. So, you serve God consistently, especially in suffering. That's the first point. Second one is going to be you are getting to know God deliberately. Third is you experience God periodically. And fourth is you exhibit God generously. So those are the four things. If you can check, 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 I got great news for you. If you can check most of them, I've got pretty good news for you. And if you can check none of them, uh, see me after the service. So uh, let's check the first one. You serve God consistently, especially in suffering. Uh, so if you know the story in Acts, you know that the first three chapters, things are going pretty well. Pretty, pretty well. Um, Jesus ascends. This is after he's uh, been killed and resurrected, and he's been teaching the disciples to Pentecost. And um, 40 days after he's resurrected, he ascends to heaven. And they say, bye, Jesus, and they, they watch him float up into the sky. Um, and it goes pretty well from then on. There's 3,000 converts at one sermon that Peter teaches. There's another few thousand and another one. Uh, the church is exploding all over in the Judea area and around um, some other places. It's about to explode a whole lot once Paul gets going in chapter 7 and 8. Um, and then in chapter 4, the bottom kind of falls out. Um, and Peter, Peter, and I think it's either James and John, are thrown into prison. Double check there. Uh, Peter and John, they get thrown into prison. And essentially the Pharisees just um, say, hey, look, you know, don't preach in Jesus' name again. Uh, we're going to beat you real quick, and then you can leave. And so they get, they get beat up a little bit. They leave the jail, um, and they praise God on the way back. And they get back to the house with, all the, uh, with the other apostles and the disciples and the deacons and such. And, um, and what's the first thing they do? They pray. Okay, and we're going to get to that in a second. But we're starting to experience some suffering. And later in history... Um, Josephus and some other Roman historians tell us Peter was executed by being crucified upside down. Um, John was exiled to the island of Patmos. James was thrown off the top of the temple and then beaten with clubs. So we know that these guys eventually are going to be suffering. Jesus tells Peter, you're going to die a death similar to mine. Like, they know this is coming. Um, and they do it anyway. So suffering is going to be a part of the Christian life. We see that starting in Acts chapter 4. We also see suffering in the life of a believer or as someone who affirms God in Job. Um, and the book of Job is it's in the Old Testament. 
It has to do with a guy named Job, and he's super, super rich, super, super wealthy, very successful, has a lot of children, has a beautiful wife, and, and all the things, and he has the, the latest Ford that they could buy during the time, probably like a five-wheel wagon or something like that. Like, it's crazy. He's just super, super rich. And God has been blessing him with those things. God's been giving him these things. And so, at a meeting of, I guess, the angels, or the, the Bible says it's an, uh, a meeting of, you know, in heaven. God is calling his people to heaven. And Satan shows up, because I guess he can just walk into heaven anytime he wants. And um, God and Satan have this conversation in Job chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Um, and it's up on the screen if you want to read it too. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And he says it kind of just like unsolicited, like, hey, you see my guy down there? Yeah, that's Job. He's pretty cool. And Satan says in verse 9, uh, Satan answers the Lord and says, does Job fear God or serve God for no reason? You give him all this stuff, you give him these things, and that's why he serves you. And so they make essentially a wager, a bet. Um, and God says, you know, you can take everything that he has, just don't hurt him, don't kill him. Okay, and so he takes all of his kids, he takes all of his cows and his five-wheel wagon, he takes all of his stuff that he has. His wife leaves him, his friends tell him that he's been sinning so much and that's why God's punishing him. Um, his wife basically tells, to, tells him to, um, uh, what does he say, what does she say? Curse God and die, that's what it is. She says, curse God and die, which is basically like, dude, you're screwed, buddy. Sorry. You know, all these things are happening. And all the, the, the 41 chapters of Job, the 40, 41 chapters of Job, after he loses everything, and if you've read the book, you know this, it's just so hard to read. It's, God, why are you doing this to me? And he's yelling at God, and he's angry with God, and he's, he's just beside himself with, with suffering, with, with rage, and with just bewilderment. Like, what? what? Why is this happening to me? I've served you, and, you know. And then at the end of the book, and this is my favorite part, God flourish Job with two chapters of questions about who, who set the levels of the sea, and who raised the foundations of the earth. And, you know, and he asks all these questions. And at the end of the book, he vindicates Job he gives him his things back plus more. Um, he blesses him beyond all belief. Why? Why? How does God operate like that? We don't see that in everyday life, do we? Usually someone that we see suffering just suffers. Why does God do that with Job? And here's why. And this is so cool. Because in his suffering, it's just the allergies, don't worry. Uh, and Job's suffering, he's yelling and he's ranting and he's raving and he's angry and he's shaking his fist. And he's doing it all to God. All of his rants and all of his raves, they're to God. It, the suffering didn't separate him from God. It intensified his prayer life. It brought him closer. So, that is, that's, that's Job's vindication from God. That is his, you've done this, you you never left me. You just got closer to me. You clung to me closer. Satan, however, and this is going to sound weird in the church, Satan, however, does raise a good point. Um, does God, or does Job serve God for nothing? And the answer that God gives Satan and gives us through the scripture is absolutely. 
Job does serve God for nothing. He served God because he is God. And that's what this is right here. This first point is that you serve God consistently even in suffering. Absolutely, Job is yelling at God and doing these things, but what he never stopped doing was communicating with God and staying in relationship with God and talking to God. And even through his sufferings, losing his children in a freak wind accident, all these horrible, horrible things. He, got, he gets boils and it's all painful and it's awful to read. It really is. And it, he never stopped praying to God and yelling at God and to God. And God vindicates him for it. And so we see Satan, you know, he raises the question to nine. True servants of God don't serve for what God gives them. Let me say that again. True servants of God, faithful servants of God, aren't in it for the benefits. This isn't a business transaction. You know, I can't, I can't go get grace for two cents cheaper grace God has the market cornered on grace I have to go through them so God's relationship with us it's not a business transaction we can't we can't find grace cheaper and when we suffer we find out whether we're in it for the benefits and that we're just serving God for the benefits that come to me or if we're in it for who God is and what he's done for us and if we realize that his finished work on the cross is a result of his love toward me, all of a sudden it stops being a business transaction and starts becoming a relational transaction. And so this applies to our scripture because we see the, uh, we see the apostles after Peter and John get back, the first thing they do, they drop to the knees, they pray. Now, what do they pray for? They pray for boldness. You know, we pray that we can boldly preach your gospel, your word. We also pray for miraculous signs, healing people, people coming to know you, people converting uh, at the name of Jesus to the, to the Father's right hand, to sh- being shown the glory of God. Those are the things they pray for. And they could have easily prayed for like protection. That, I mean, that would have been first on my list. Like God... Please get these Pharisees off my case, man. Get them away from me. Or, God, it would be very cool if I got a super cool fortress with laser beams to keep everybody away from me. So I could go preach and run back to my fortress. Or, hey, God, uh, make me super strong like Samson. That would be helpful. No, they didn't do that. They prayed for the boldness to preach his word, and they prayed for miracles to show his work. That's all. They prayed for what they wanted God to accomplish through them, not for what their needs were at that very moment, which would have rightly been protection, which would have rightly been um, help in any sort of way whatsoever. And I'm not saying it's bad to pray for your needs because it definitely isn't. You know, we pray for the things that we need, and God tells us that we are supposed to and do do that. Um, But that's not what they did. They weren't in it for the benefits. They were in it to glorify God, to bring his word to the people as Jesus told them to do. Excuse me. Um, Imagine, and I'll use Dan as an example because he's just right here and he gave me a hug earlier. Um, 
Dan has a friend, and this friend has been to Dan's house. He knows it's very cool. Uh, he's ridden on the tractors, seen the cows, and all the stuff. And those are very cool to that person. And something happens with Dan, and he loses everything like Job. And all of a sudden, Dan's friend is nowhere to be found. That makes us feel pretty bad, right? Like if someone does that to you, like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm no longer a billionaire, so what? And then we get mad, and justifiably so, like you're right to get angry about this, they abandon you. You don't have any money, you don't have any more benefits, they're gone, see you later. How dare we then do that to God? And we do it all the time. How dare we do that to God? If we get angry about that, how dare we do that to him? So, number one, uh, you're getting, you know God consistently, you follow God consistently, even through suffering. Number two, you're getting to know God deliberately, and this kind of gets into prayer here a little bit. In John 17, 3, uh, Jesus says that this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, who you have sent. Uh, and I, you know, I said this earlier, demons know all sorts of great doctrine, right? They know more about God than we ever will. Uh, they're in that realm. They're in that plan. They, they see the things that we can't. Um, and so it isn't then, and I know that we've heard this enough in church, but it isn't then enough to simply know God or know about God or even, you know, know fun facts about God. It's, it's not enough. Jesus, um, with the parable of the, the lambs, you know, you go, you depart from me, I never knew you, and I know you. You know, he's not saying, hey, you know me, right? We don't say that. That's not something we do. Like, hey, you know me, right? Or you, Kevin knows me, or, you know, Preston knows. No, no, it's not what we do. We have to know someone before we have rapport with them. And so Jesus is saying here, too, you know, make them know me, and I'm going to know them as well. And when we get to know God deliberately, that's going to be the result. Is, of course, God knows everything. He knows everybody. And if we know him, there's the relationship. So we see this word tossed around in church, right? Personal relationship, or this phrase, personal relationship. And it's kind of easier to describe, and you've seen it kind of reflected here in the slides too. Personal means that I realize that Jesus' work and God's work through redemptive history, happened for me. Or for you. It's not to say, yeah, Jesus saved the whole world. For God so loved the world, you know, capital W, that he gave his only son. That's impersonal. We, it's great, and it's understanding, and it's good news. It's the verse everyone knows. But until you come to a realization that Jesus died for me, it won't be real. It won't be real. So that's the personal part, right? The relationship part is this. And this is, excuse me, this is a little bit more uh, nuanced. So 80% of Americans in a, in a Pew Research poll claim that they pray. You know, it could be a Buddhist prayer, Muslim prayer, Christian, whatever. 80% of Americans claim that they pray, right? And that's great for the Christians, um, except when the Christian prayer goes something like this, God, please uh, I would like a Ferrari, and I would also like a Mazda 626 that I can drive around town, a standard, if you would, please. Um, I would also, you know, and they give them, they give them a grocery list, right? And you, we've all done that. I've done that. I did that the other day. 
and just start naming off stuff. It's easy to get the prayer train text out on your phone and just go through the laundry list. Okay, where did I start? Okay, here's where we go. And you wouldn't do that with anyone else. Imagine if someone told you their life story. It's a World War II veteran. He fought at Normandy. He was at Omaha Beach. And he's going through the whole thing. He's going through the story. And the German machine guns are firing and blah, blah, blah. And we didn't know if we were going to make it out. And my friend didn't. And he goes through his whole story. And it's a beautiful story. And he, you know, he gets out of there. He has a family. They, you know, they all have kids and grandkids. He's got like three sets of grandkids. And it's amazing. And he's lived a beautiful life. He tells you this story. And at the end of it, he just offers you everything. He says, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set you up in my company and you're going to be on the, you're going to be in the trust and the whole thing. And you listen to the story and you, at the end of the story, say, yeah, I'd like a Ferrari and a Mazda 626 to drive around town. That is insane. It's mentally ill. No one does that. And so why do we read the Bible and do the exact same thing. The Bible, the entire 66 books of the Bible that we have in our hands right now is the entire history of redemption laid out before us. It's what it is. And God tells us the story and he tells us things about him. In, in, uh, in Isaiah, in the Psalms, in the Proverbs, he tells us stuff about him in Leviticus and no one likes reading Leviticus. I don't. It was a slog to get through it, man. But he tells us about his holiness and his grace in Leviticus. Uh, with, the, with the uncertified fire when Aaron's sons get killed because they use the wrong fire and God just kills them on the spot. We find out about God's holiness there. And we find out about the depths of the law and how deep it goes and how serious God takes even the smallest details. And when we get to Matthew chapter 5, we realize that, buddy, I can't carry all this insert Jesus because he can carry the weight of all the little intricacies and details and the holiness of God that's what he that's his, that was his purpose that's what he did was take all that weight and weight away from us so the correct way to go about the guy telling us the story is this asking him questions talking back to him using his words right because then he feels valued he feels loved he feels heard and not that we have to care about God's feelings necessarily because he's independent of any of that. We don't, he doesn't need us to care about that stuff. But he cares about it. So I'm going to say something. This is going to be counterintuitive for a lot of us. And this is part of that cultural haze that I was going over, right? Prayer isn't necessarily just talking to God. It's answering God with his words. We see it all over the Psalms. That's what the Psalms are doing, is they're answering God on his terms, with his words, with the things that he said about himself through his revealed revelation. And if we approach prayer like that, all of a sudden, we start seeing a shift and things start seeming to break through and we start seeing things answered, quote-unquote, because he secures the prayers of his people in his will. And if we're praying his word to him, not that God is bound to anything, but God is completely consistent in everything that he says. What he says, he will do. And Joshua 21.45 says that too. What God has promised Israel, 
He didn't fail to deliver on. He made it happen when they entered, the, entered Canaan. God secures the prayers of his people in his will. And if we pray and we pray his words, that is the system. That's how the, the prayer thing works. And so if we're getting to go know God deliberately, we're not only listening to his words through his scripture, we're also speaking those things back to him. We're getting it twice. And it's beautiful the way he set this up. Absolutely. Go- and I would never do it like this. I just want people to talk about me all the time. He wants to hear about himself through the words that he spoke because those are the best things to say about him. Uh, we talked about this in Sunday school. How do you know, you know, how do you express your love for someone? You do what they say. You do what, you do what, you know, you do things that are good for them. You do things that they want you to do. You express your love through that. God's no different. He gave us the commandments and he wants us to do those things. Those are an outgrowing of him. So, and this, this is that verse from Joshua, sorry. Not one of all the good promises that the Lord has made to the house of Israel failed, all came to pass. And that's Joshua 21, 46. Uh, thirdly, so we've done uh, um, living consistently, even in suffering, getting to know God deliberately. These last two kind of go really fast. So you experience God periodically. Um, and when we experience God periodically, we might think of like, like Pentecostals crying and waving their hands and dancing around, tambourines and stuff like that, and handling snakes or whatever, you know, uh, stuff like that. And that might be an expression of faith. Um, but as we'll see here in a second, that's not all that this is. Um, John 16, 14, and 15, Jesus says this, uh, He will glorify me, talking about the Spirit, for the will, uh, and He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's the Holy Spirit talking. Um, Jesus talking about the Holy Spirit. Clay used that, uh, that verse last week, too. Um, the Holy Spirit that we have now isn't like starting over. The Holy Spirit has been around since before everything started. It's part of the Trinity. Everything that God knows and everything that the Son knows, the Spirit also knows. And when you become a believer and your spirit is raised from the dead and you're regenerated and indwelled with the Holy Spirit, you have, you have the ultimate conscience. You know what is right and wrong. You know how to do things and not do things. And the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, has that knowledge and gives it to you freely. Oh. So we also see this in... in in the, in the Acts passage, that after they get done praying, right, what happens? Pop quiz, what happens? The place was shaken. And we'll get back to that here in a second. But they experienced God in that moment, right? The place was shaken. Um, the function of the Holy Spirit in us is this, too. Is, and this is the difference between knowing and not knowing, right? The personal versus just the knowing knowledge is I can say John 3, 16 till I'm blue in the face. And until it's made personal to me, I'm not going to really get it. And it's just words. The Holy Spirit makes that verse beautiful to you. And so when you've been awakened, when your spirit's been awakened and you know what's going on, and you can read the Bible through the, the lens of the Holy Spirit, it makes stuff like John three sixteen, Leviticus, Deuteronomy is another one that's just kind of a slog. 
it brings a lot of that stuff just to life. It really, really does. Um, and that's part of experiencing God, right? Uh, Thomas Goodwin, he is a Puritan pastor in the 1700s, and he wrote in his journal this story, and it's really a cool story, um, and it may not seem cool to you, but it's cool to me, so I'm going to share it. Um, but one day he saw Thomas Goodwin, um, saw a father and son walking down the road in, in uh, colonial America. So the, the hats and the buckles and the turkeys and all that stuff, right? Um, and the father's walking alongside the son and vice versa. And all of a sudden, the father just picks the son up and he raises him up and he says, I love you, and he kisses him and he hugs him and he puts him back down to keep walking. Now, the question that he asks is this uh, later on, is was that little boy more of a son in the father's arms than he was just on the road? No, of course not. Now, Sadie's still my daughter. If she's in the nursery or right here in my arms, wherever, she's still legally my daughter. She's still objectively my daughter. There's no difference, but the experience of the child changes in that moment, doesn't it? When he gets picked up and kissed and hugged and, and doted on and loved and everything else, that's the experience that we're talking about here. And so if you experience God periodically, just in a, in a, in a flash of emotion, Paul does this in Romans a couple of times where he just breaks out in random worship He's doing this theological dissertation, and then, oh, praise God, the inscrutable ways in Romans, in Romans 8. And that's, what experience, that's the experience thing that we do. And it's not all the time. We can't live on the mountains. It isn't just, I'm up here, and I'm staying up here, and there's nothing that can bring me down. And you can't live that. You can't live that way. We go through these mountaintops, we go through these valleys, and God takes us through both of them. And when we experience God periodically, now that may be, that may be us doing a trip to the Grand Canyon. Uh, not like the vacation trip where they kind of get there and Chevy Chase goes, huh, and they walk back to the car, right? Not that one. But it's, you know, it's a big one where you see everything and then all of a sudden, now we're back in a valley. And it's, things aren't as cool anymore. Things aren't as okay anymore. It's kind of dark here. Um, I can't see anything that's going on. And that goes back to the suffering thing, right? If we're living consistently in suffering, it ultimately doesn't matter where we are as long as we're following God and following in his footsteps in front of us. Um, so, I mean, it, entertainment factor, uh, charismatic churches, Methodist churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian, the frozen chosen, like they sit in their pews and talk about Jesus and they're done. All of those are valid expressions of of our faith. They're all valid. As long as they hold to like the central biblical doctrines, all the Jesus doctrines, the Apostles' Creed, all that stuff, as long as they hold to that, it's valid. Everything else, Calvinism, Arminianism, all that stuff, that's all secondary. Who cares about that stuff? No one should care about that stuff more than their faith. And so if you want to yell and scream, go to a church that yells and screams. If you want to you know, if you want to have a worship service like ours, come to our church. If you, want to go, if you want to go to a Methodist church, go to a Methodist church. Because those things are built to fit us, not the other way around. The denominations. Not the, not the Bible, but the denominations are that way. So those are valid expressions of worship. Um, last one, you exhibit God generously. Oh, sorry, that quote. Um, you don't get to see it. Exhibit God generously is the last one. This one's pretty short. We see in verse 31... Um, 
that all the people in the church start selling their stuff, giving it away to the poor. And that is simply an expression of God's graciousness and gratitude. God gives you everything. All your stuff, your savings account, your, your stock portfolio, all that stuff doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Um, you're a steward of what he gives you. And so it's always good to remember that, especially when the savings account starts going up, the stimulus payments start hitting, I've got a little more money than I did last month. And then if you lose it, what happens? It all depends on the first three points. Because if you lose it all, okay. Or you give it all away, okay. People accumulate stuff like that out of two ways. Okay, number one is they might be materialistic, like they just like the stuff, the things. Um, and they might just be greedy. And that, you know, that's always a possibility. Humans are greedy. Uh, but some people just accumulate out of fear. You know, I'm not going to have enough. I just got to keep accumulating. I'm not going to have enough. We see that a lot of people with children that um, face hunger at home. They don't eat all their food at once at school. They'll kind of just hoard some stuff away, keep some stuff back, because they're afraid they're going to run out. Um, we operate on the same premise with our money. So if you get more security as your savings account goes up, you need to kind of, and I'm just going to say this bluntly, you've got to have a change of heart there because your security doesn't lie in your savings account. And if it does, you're going to be poorly, uh, you're going to be poorly spent whenever that stuff's gone. You take your spirit to heaven and that's it. Exhibit God generously. You know, I'm not, this isn't a tithe sermon. I didn't just do this to say tithe. You know, I don't get paid by the church, um, except for fill-in stuff. But, you know, give to people. Give to people. Give to your church and give to people is, is that one. Uh, so we talked about that word shaken. Um, and there are a few times when that word pops up. And here, here's the thing with the word shaken is, and this is, um, the, the song Holy Ground, this kind of speaks to this a little bit, is when God's presence comes down on earth, any time in the Bible, there's either fire, like the burning bush, or the, the, the column of fire that leaves the exodus, and, um, or there's an earthquake, there's shaking. And there's some examples here. You see it at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, you see the threshold shake. Isaiah writes about that when he's, uh, when he's in his vision. Uh, you hear Deborah sing about uh, trembling and shaking in Judges 5. And then, you know, 2 Samuel in the Psalms, Nahum, and Habakkuk. Oh, in the Old Testament, we see a lot of shaking going on. Um, and here's uh, that guy, Tim Keller, that I was talking about earlier. Here's how he explains that shaking. And I thought this was so, so, so good, is that God coming down to earth is something of greater substance in reality coming into contact with something with less substance in reality. And that sounds like really lofty and high, and here's what this means. If I walk out on one-inch ice on a lake, what's going to happen? That's kind of mean that you would say that. I'm just kidding. Um, uh, yeah, I'm going to fall in, right? Because in that moment when I step on the ice, I'm of greater substance than the ice is, right? I'm more based in reality than that ice is in that moment because that ice is about to not be under my foot. The water is, but not the ice. When God comes in contact with the earth, when God comes down uh, onto earth, we see the earth violently shake. 
That doesn't mean every earthquake that we experience. I mean, they're not all God coming down on earth. But we, you see the point. In Scripture, whenever that happens, um, it's God coming on earth. He coming down here, stepping on earth. His presence has been laid on earth. It's why the, the, the priests in the Old Testament had to purify themselves before they stepped into the Holy of Holies. It's why when Moses asked God, can I just see your face you know, for a second? God says, no, you'll, you will die. You'll be shaken to death if you see me. And it's why, and I'm about to read this actual passage here, um, that when the disciples pray here in this passage in Acts, the place is shaken. Because not only are their prayers being heard, God is making good on it immediately. And he shakes them. Uh, John Chrysostom, who's a, who's a fourth century, he's a Greek pastor, and you can read a lot of his sermons. He's got like 13,000 pages of sermons. Download the book for free on, uh, on a Kindle. The more the place was shaken, and he's talking about this passage, the more the place was shaken, the less the Christians were. How? Here's how. And here's how we can be less shaken in our lives with these four points along with this. In Matthew chapter 27 and 28, we see two earthquakes. Uh, Matthew 27, that sounds familiar. That's because we just did Easter, okay? 27, Matthew 27, it says this starting in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus decried in a loud voice saying, uh, say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 47, and some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to him and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Verse 51, and behold, the earth, uh, behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split and tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many when the centurion of those who were with him kept watching, uh, were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and took place, they saw all the things that took place. They were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. That's the first earthquake, right? So why does it happen then? Here's why. Because when Jesus is dying on the cross, our sins, past, present, future, Stephen's sins were laid on Christ. And God's judgment landed on Christ, and the earth quaked, and the veil was torn. And forevermore, there was not a separator between us and God. So the earthquake's in 27. And then in 28, we see it again. Whoa! The second to last time that we see this happen. In 28, at the resurrection, the stone wasn't just simply rolled away, right? There was an earthquake in Matthew 28. The stone is rolled away. Uh, the ladies get there. The angels are there. Why are, you looking for, why are you looking for the living amongst the dead? God's presence rested again on Jesus. And he was brought back into this life. And then 40 days later, he scooted on out and left the Holy Spirit for us. 
He was shaken. Jesus was shaken so that we could be unshakable. He was shaken so that we can live a consistent life, even through suffering. He suffered the most sufferable suffering so that we can live consistently with him. He left us the Holy Spirit. He was shaken to death so that could happen. And so, through all the shaking, we can look back at Job. We can look back at the disciples in Acts. And we can look at confidence, saying, and Lois, go ahead and come on up. Um, we can look with confidence on Jesus and say, I can be shaken and I cannot die now. Is this isn't like Moses. This isn't like Elijah. This isn't like Isaiah or anybody else. I can be shaken and not die. Job says, and this is kind of pithy, and you know, if you don't remember anything else, remember this. You know, Job says at the end of the book, you know, I know that my Redeemer lives. And that's good. And we know that too. But we know better than Job too. Because not only does our Redeemer live, but our Redeemer also died for us too. And that's where we can take comfort in our suffering. Um, we're going to have an invitation. I'll be down here. Um, there won't be any words up here to sing. I want you to think about the, that question that we started at the beginning. Am I really? Was I really? And be in prayer about that, seeking those answers. And try to check off the list. Try to do the things that, that we talked about at the beginning. Because it's so important for us to take inventory of that every once in a while. And, you know, you can call it your shakeability factor or whatever you want to call it, but Jesus died so we didn't have to be shaken by anything in this life. And if we keep our eyes on him, that's where we will end up. So let's have a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you uh, for what you're about to do in these last moments here today, God. Uh, you, made us shakeable, you made us unshakable through your shaken son, and we thank you for all the things that he has done and that you're going to do in these moments. Bless this time. In your name I pray. Amen.